This week, and not necessarily in this order, we welcome Ed Scotus, the founder of Counterhack Challenges and CrinkleCon 2018, to talk about this year's challenge and what's in store. Uh, in another segment that'll happen at some point, uh, we're going to welcome back Don Murdoch. Uh, Murdoch, even? Murdoch, Murdoch. Murdoch, thank you. Assistant Director of the Regent University Cyber Range and author of Blue Team Handbook to talk about what's new in this edition, how it differs from the last. In the security news, how Taylor Swift used facial recognition. Well, it wasn't actually Taylor Swift that used anyway. Um, <clears throat> unlocking Android phones with a 3D printed head. Ticketmaster fails to take responsibility for some malware. And it's December of 2018, so, I mean, why don't we just patch all of our stuff already? All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. The average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year. Can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long? Can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light? Black Hills Information Security can find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network. Domain tools help security analysts turn threat data into threat intelligence. They take indicators from your network, including domains and IP addresses, and connect them with nearly every active domain on the internet. Those connections drive risk assessments, help profile attackers, guide online fraud investigations, and map cyber activity to attacker infrastructure. Fortune 1000 companies, global government agencies, and leading security solutions vendors use the Domain Tools platform as a critical ingredient in their threat investigations and proactive defenses. For more information, visit securityweekly.com forward slash domain tools. And welcome to the show. But first... Let me welcome the man who bought GIFs, the GIFT of GitHub, for gosh right, Mr. Paul Asadorian. Welcome everyone to Paul's Security Weekly. This is episode 586 even. It is being recorded on December 13th, 2018 in G-Unit Studios here in Rhode Island. Mr. Larry Pesci. Is at the table with me in studio. <sighs> yes, that I am. Welcome, sir. Thank you. I like your t-shirt. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, can't really see it on camera. Mark was laughing at it. Do you think he got the joke? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. It's not, it's not based on a movie, so he probably got it. <laughs> oh, boy. rest of uh, the crew is on remotely. Uh, a couple of them, anyhow. Mr. Keith Hoodlet is here with us. Welcome, Keith. Hey, I for one did not get the shirt for like the first, I don't know, 30 or 40 seconds of sit- sitting there looking at it. So, yeah, almost a minute, <laughs> almost a minute. I I looked at his shirt and didn't pay attention and then later Larry's like, "Look at my shirt." And I too had to stare at it before <laughs> I I got it. Anyway, also on the lines, uh, Mr. Joff Fire, Joff, welcome. Yeah, hey Paul, it's good to see you. I, you know, I looked at I looked at Larry's shirt there for a minute, and I I, I misread that. I, I I read it as tits. Wow, one track mind, Joff. One track mind, Joff. I think it's an it's an Australian thing, honestly. The dirty yeah, no, jokes. I, it's just an Australian thing. 
there's some there's some good Australian things to talk about tonight. By the way, speaking of Australian things, yeah, or maybe not yeah. so good, but we'll get to it when we get to it. You are resident Australian uh, expert, Joff. So, yeah, yeah, the, or or token individual, if you want to put it that way. Yes. Uh, quick announcement before we get started: the RSA Conference 2019. Ooh, believe that I RSA know. 2019. It's coming soon too. Uh, it's the place to be for the latest in cybersecurity, data innovation, and thought leadership. March 4th through the 8th in San Francisco, of course, um, will come alive with cybersecurity's brightest minds as they gather to discuss the industry's newest development. Uh, developments even you can go to rsaconference.com forward slash security weekly dash us 19 that's a really long url rsaconference.com forward slash security weekly dash us 19 register now using the discount code 5u9 sw f d is in dog f is in frank w is in weather wrinkle <laughs> walrus walrus in, walrus w is in wa- and what's you ukulele yes uranus it's five and, and w is our favorite five whiskey oh five u nine s sierra whiskey, whiskey sierra. foxtrot delta yes i get that right yes there you go receive Good job one hundred dollars off a full conference pass and now it's amazing what a what a bargain! What a bargain! I like how right? Joff's Australian accent is kind of like a Rhode Island accent. Yeah, it's, <laughs> like, sometimes it is. I get a little New England mix in there. What a bargain! <laughs> so just I throw the R's right the out idea. the window. No, wait. Keep the R's for the end of words like idea. <laughs> yeah, idea. Pakistan, Harvard, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. You can't get rid of them completely. You use them in other places. We're very efficient. That's right. We like rearrange. That. That's yeah, right. Rearrange. Well, let's talk about the security news. Um, we've got uh, two interviews coming up that we're excited about. Um, and so let's talk about Taylor Swift. I mean, why not? Who doesn't want to talk about Taylor Swift? T-Swizzle. T-Swizzle. <laughs> so for once, she's not writing songs about her boyfriends? I mean, wow. I'm, no, I'm I think she's still doing that. Um, however, the, apparently people are stalking. I guess that's the price of fame. Um, and according to Rolling Stone, there was a facial recognition camera hidden inside of a kiosk playing clips of Taylor Swift from rehearsals as fans approached to watch the kiosk. As I mean, if you're a fan of Taylor Swift, why wouldn't you want to watch that? The camera would stealthily snap their photo. The images were then compared to a database of Swift's known stalkers. Um, obviously, there's some privacy concerns here. Um, and the example is that Ticketmaster invested in uh, an Austin, Texas-based facial recognition startup Blink Identity, which says its technology can identify 60 people a minute walking at full speed past a sensor, meaning that digital tickets are a thing of the past pretty soon. Wow. What do you well, guys think? So, so I, have, I have one question on this, right? Say you happen to be a European citizen... You're in Austin, Texas for work, which because, you know, it's a technology hub. You decide to go check out this Taylor Swift concert and you get your data, you know, your picture taken uh, and you don't know it. Is that a violation of GDPR? Again, I know none of us on this are lawyers, but what do you think? I mean, it depends if they are storing it. Um, I'm not sure if your face is, is that covered in legislation like that? 
I don't know. I mean, well, so if you think about it, right, they're comparing the database of faces against known stalkers. So they also have a list of people. We were talking about this. uh, I don't believe there are many laws and bless you, laws and regulations. However, bless you, the um, there was an article that we covered on Hack Naked News that talked about um, the facial recognition technology and what some of the the laws are around that, how they store the data. Someone actually emailed me, too, that did their thesis on facial recognition technology. Um, there was lots of speculation uh, about that. So, And, and about yeah, whether... You, how do you relate that to the user was my, was my question. Like, great, mm. I can take Larry's picture. I can compare it, find other pictures of Larry, but how do I then... I mean, unless Larry's holding up a sign with all his personal information below his picture, which that would right. be kind well, of bad. But my guess is that it would be really hard to enforce, especially if you—I don't know—you're someone that goes to London, for example, which has you know cameras yeah, everywhere. Cameras, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I imagine that it, there's probably some sort of exception for uh, laws related to protective, you know, protective measures, whether it's police or. Um, you know, protecting someone from bodily harm or other things like that. I imagine that there's probably some sort of um, legal protections around those those people that are taking photos of other individual users yep. for identity purposes. Yep. And and one might argue, at least the, on the the taking of photographs here in the U.S., that um, in public you have no uh, expectation of privacy and you can take pictures of people at the park type of thing because you're in a public space and you mm-hmm. don't necessarily have to get a photo release. And I suppose if you're going to use that like in a magazine shoot or something, you should get a photo release. Or, But I, I, I highly suspect that they ran this by some lawyers and the lawyers said it was okay. But Yeah, could be, I mean, I could again, be it was a startup who was probably like, yeah, YOLO, yep. do, the, do the thing. Do the thing prove with the, the con- stuff. Prove the concept. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's probably it. And, and you know, on the topic of London, hey, they're not going to have to worry about Europe for much longer anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Brexit that way Fair right enough. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. There's going to be a second referendum, and they're going to be begging to go back in. <laughs> oh, anyway. Whoa. That there's sideways. a joke there somewhere. There's, there's totally yeah, a joke there somewhere. And there's I'm some joke of, about Taylor Swift or something in there that mm. we're, just, we're missing. We, we missed that opportunity hmm. to quote a line from her song. I, you know, you know what really grinds Brexit? my gears? Taylor Swift. No, Lindsay Lohan. You know who had a hard Brexit, though, and is going to have a really hard time with technology going forward is Australia. Oh, oh wait. Yeah. I was going to... Hold on. Sorry, Keith. I oh. wanted to... Jumping ahead. Jumping ahead. Well, I wanted to go... Since we're talking about facial recognition technology, I thought uh, a good segue... And I do want to talk about Australia... Uh, in their backdoor laws, um, that uh, someone unlocked Android phones with a 3D printed head. Speaking of facial recognition that, technology, uh, I'm I'm not sure how they created the head. Whether it was just based on was it pictures? I mean, I'm sure they didn't know. mold the person. He does say that he sent it somewhere and paid 300 euros, pounds, something. 300 non-American dollars? 300 non-American dollars to have this head made, which if you read the article or see the picture in the article, it looks very, very creepy. Um, Yes, it does. And apparently um, he uh, managed to unlock all four Android phones, which were duped into thinking they were looking at the real Tom, which is his name. Only the iPhone X was not duped, which 
somewhat unscientifically confirms our suspicions that iPhone's facial recognition technology is actually pretty good. And at further no surprise, Android's is not as secure. Go figure. How do you like your new Android phone, Paul? I like it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so, so my guess is, doesn't uh, the iPhone's version of the facial recognition have something to do with eye movement that it detects? Is Am I correct in understanding that? I know they do a couple of things. They do some sort of like radiant heat plus um, like eye movement and probably a few other things as, as far as I can recall. Yeah. Yep. That was my understanding as well. Yeah, so, I mean, Apple got it right when it comes to security for at least their facial recognition. Now, the security of the rest of their products and operating systems and platforms is, you know, remains to be seen, I think, um, or not. I think we all have our opinions uh, on that, but uh, kind of interesting. I I just, the reason I like that story, I think it was pretty cool that you would go out and have a 3D printed head made of yourself i mean the only other person i could think of that would do something that crazy might might be ed oh it's ed scotus oh who's oh my god ed is here hey ed hey. how's it going we were hey, just how's timing? talking Good. about you <laughs> <laughs> a great segue it right going? it's going good thanks for joining thank you uh so ed have you ever considered making a 3d printed head based on yourself no, but I think Larry was going to 3D print my brain a few years ago. Yes. In fact, I was actually going to use glow-in-the-dark uh, filament to make it happen. we got to get back to that project yeah, at some point. I, I, do, I, I agree. do. I agree with and, this. Uh, so I have your MRIs from your, from your brain uh, under NDA. And, uh, very, uh, there was an NDA, but it was probably bad judgment on my part to send that. <laughs> it probably was because you wanted me to 3D print them. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, the, the tools that I was using to model it, just did, it, the, the MRI didn't have the resolution, which I find strange. It was so well. I was really messed up when they gave me the MRI. So uh, they didn't have to do a very tight one. They were looking for oh. brain tumors or uh, MS, and uh, they didn't need a tight resolution on it. They told me because the the problems were so significant. Turns out it was mercury poisoning. So, um, thankfully, it was neither of those issues. I, the brain yes. is actually. If you look on the wall behind me, can you see the pictures of my yep. brain? Yep. Other side, Ed. Other side. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Yes. Wait, you you have pictures of your MRI of your brain hanging in your office? You don't? <laughs> oh, I, I I'm going to get right on that actually. Maybe maybe for Christmas this year I'll send you pictures of my MRI of my brain. There you go. Yeah. Oh, what a great Christmas card. What do you have in your office? Oh, it's just Ed's brain. Well, pictures of his brain. You see it? There it is. <laughs> yep. That's cool. So, it's like this is your brain. This is Ed's brain. On your wall. There you go. <laughs> I figured it might as well. Look, I was freaked out when I was going through the whole thing. And my son even, uh, he came into my room. This was maybe five years ago. So he's about 12. And uh, he said, Dad, what's going on? I'm like, well, look, there could be this issue. Um, you know, I got to get a, a brain scan. And he said, well, Dad, you know, best case scenario that comes out of this is that, you know, you get hundreds of pictures of your brain and you could do stuff with that. And I'm like, that's, that's an optimist view. So. I, you know, that's not surprising for your son to say that. I, that doesn't shock me at all. That's something you would say, Ed. <laughs> He's a good boy. He's a good boy. I love, awesome. the, I love the studio. It looks fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we made some, some improvements since the last time uh, you've been on. So, yeah, I mean, I'm digging the table. It's, it's a lot more comfortable yeah. to do the show. So yeah. your office and is the looking. Lighting, the lighting looks great. Yeah, thank you. Your office is spectacular as usual. 
Oh, thank you. The uh, lights change. You'll see them every uh, three quarters of a second. One of the lights changes color. Um, awesome. White, green, and red for the holidays. Um, Ed, and you're cool talking about stories for the, the next 25 minutes or so and then doing yeah, your segment? Okay, awesome. Whatever you want to do. Sweet. Should I get my Santa hat? You can, you can wear your Santa hat, sure. Absolutely. Okay, I'll, be, uh, I'll be right back. We're going to talk about Australian back doors uh, while you're doing that. Whoa, whoa, oh, whoa. Is Joff here? Yes, Joff is here. <laughs> He's our resident Australian backdoor expert. Backdoor expert. <laughs> <laughs> Which is ironic because he is Australian and he is an expert in backdoors, but those exactly. two have nothing to do with each other. But <laughs> so what? Yeah. The, what is it? The, this I I don't have all the details. It, it was hard to dig into exactly what was going on because a lot of it was basically like hyperbole um, about this whole story in in opinions, not necessarily exactly what was happening in Australia. It sounds yeah. like to me that Australia passed a law that allowed them to backdoor encryption the article that that i posted talked about how um they said and i quote like for example we can do this with a warrant but it was like for example a warrant i'm like hold on what are some other examples like not right. with a warrant like, I, that's kind of <laughs> interesting language anyway joff well over to you okay i suppose i'll have to talk about this being the token uh australian co-host uh well, if you can even call me that now, I am a dual national these days. But anyway, um, no, the, as I understand it, the the new legislation uh, doesn't actually uh, clarify actual specifics except for naming uh, three levels of assistance in accessing encrypted uh, accessing encrypted data. Uh, one is a technical assistance request, uh, which is a notice to tech companies for providing voluntary assistance to law enforcement, including removing electronic pr uh, protection. Providing technical information, installing software, putting information in a particular format, and facilitating access to devices or services. The other one is a technical assistance notice that requires, rather than requests, so that's taking it up a notch, companies to give assistance that are already capable of providing uh, that is uh, reasonable, proportionate, practical, technically feasible, giving Australian agencies the flexibility to seek decryption of encrypted communications in circumstances where companies have, oh, okay, I'm getting tired now. Um, and the third one is technical capability notice, which is issued by the attorney general requiring companies to build a new capability to decrypt communications for Australian law enforcement. Now, this third entity is where all the noise is, because as we know in the U.S. and in many other places in the world, um, we've sort of uh, gone back and forth on this particular issue and it's been, you know, well debated and well understood. I think that um, that to to provide a backdoor capability in government's hands is just plain bad idea. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't resurface from time to time. It certainly resurfaced in the U.S. and certainly, as we've seen in Australia, it's now resurfaced in the form of uh, an, an actual legal uh, binding law that's been passed. So I, that's all I know. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. We, right now. I, I, I think we like to make the assumption that when we do encrypt communications, that nobody else can decrypt them other than the person that should be able to see that data and has the keys to do so. I think it obviously defeats the whole purpose of having private communications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, right. And then, then the usual arguments from us, I think, would be provided, you know, if we were involved in such a thing, and that is that. Um, 
you know, encryption in transit, encryption at rest is mm -hmm. extremely valuable, important technology, uh, protects uh, the viability of uh, lots of enterprise commercial business transactions worldwide every single day. Uh, and also that law enforcement, uh, I think it's a bit of a, it's, uh, what's the right word? It's a bit of a false assumption that you need a backdoor into encryption capability because all of us in the community well and truly know that at one end or other of the communication, the data is going to eventually be unencrypted at some point. There's going to be an opportunity in the device itself mm -hmm. uh, if there is a need to actually access uh, some information. And so I think that argument gets lost somewhere along the way uh, in, in some circles uh, that don't understand it technically well enough. And mm -hmm. I'm actually, uh, to be honest, a little bit disappointed that Australia's gone down this path, but uh, so be it. Um, it exists. And, you know, I, I think a related argument to that is the concept that um, if we put a backdoor in the product and say only the government can get to it, okay, that sounds good, but the problem is what if somebody hacks the government and gets through their backdoor? Either the backdoor has a flaw in it or something leaks out, you know, the keys that the government has or the technique that they have for getting in. Because we know nothing very sensitive would ever leak out. Ever leak, right? Like How would that happen? Eternal, government. eternal blue. <laughs> eternal, <laughs> eternal blue. Right. Um, OPM. Yeah. I mean, you know, only the most sensitive. OPM, yeah. <laughs> I want my fingerprints back. Yeah. Too late for that. Um, I think. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that's right. I think, I think to, um, as a citizenry anywhere, to, you know, basically offer up the keys to the government directly is. I think a dangerous path, uh, and uh, I think that's what Ed is pointing out, uh, because you know stuff happens. <laughs> I was going to swear, but I held back. It, well, it does it happen. does. I mean, we we have a story in here about OPSEC, right? And as, you know, as Ed's pointing out, sometimes it's on purpose, right? But sometimes OPSEC just fails, and things get out there, such yeah. as so, the addresses of all of the places where you're sending your counterfeit money, which weren't encrypted. As this was the case. Where... So, you know, the person, the person I'd love to hear an opinion on this actually is mm -hmm. Troy, uh, being um, uh, another <laughs> token Australian that's, sure. that's in the community. But Troy, Troy's very, very well uh, respected uh, and is living in Australia. So, uh, it, you know, as much as I love to comment on this stuff, I think Troy would have a better perspective of what local conditions actually drove it because I don't spend an awful lot of time in Australia. Uh, you know, of late, although I'm planning on uh, doing so next year. But um, so it, it's, uh, you, you, I think for any any of the legislation of this nature, you've got to understand uh, the public forces that were driving it and uh, what what was the lead up to, uh, you know, the ultimate conclusion here. And I think Ed just said it, it, it sounds good when you present something like this to the public to yeah. say, you know, as law enforcement uh, our, our hands are tied. We're having a really hard time. The bad guys are using encryption. You know, it, on the surface, it sells re really well, really well. And I would have loved to have a better understanding of Australian public perception uh, leading up to this actual legislation. Um, Before we jump to the next story, Paul, also, I wanted to add, um, I'll be really curious to see over the next, I don't know, three to five, maybe 10 years at most, what this does to 
both other countries trying to follow along with this kind of legislation, as well as how the manufacturers actually respond to this, right? So does Apple decide not to play ball? I think the reason that China has such a good hold on this in, inside of their own country for the same types of laws is, quite frankly, they are the means of production that are producing a lot of the electronics in the world. So they can have much more control over this because a lot of these things are built in country, um, not the case for Australia. So that'll be really interesting to see how that all turns out. Are you saying that the back doors are built in, built in in, in China? Hardware More that of the, so I'm some just of the joking. software that's. <laughs> well, I was going to say that a lot of the software that's built for the the phones in China, WeChat, for example, are effectively in the government's you know back pocket, right? So there's there's probably software based back doors that they've built into a lot of the you know blessed methods of communication, and they just lock down everything else. So. I'll be curious to know uh, for companies that are operating in the Australian market, which there are plenty, and you know Australians uh, definitely are consumers of of high end technology, um, like any other uh, Western country. But I, I'd be interested to know for companies that are actually involved, if they do receive a technical capability notice, and this is what um, I think Paul was just saying, you know, what are they actually going to do? Um, are they? You, you know, in mathematically, I don't know if anybody's ever implemented like the AES algorithm and understands it mathematically. I have. Um, you know, the the actual mathematics of the algorithm are really, really solid. Um, you would be, uh, frankly, changing the algorithm itself to implement uh, a backdoor in there. So I'd be interested to know what the technical response is going to be if an, uh, a move is made to build some sort of backdoor that um, – you know, it may be sold to the government entity as truly a backdoor into into encryption, but it may, in technical reality, be something entirely different. Yeah, and uh, Jeff, I think you bring up a good point. You remind me of a, a briefing I did with a security. Actually, there's multiple vendors in this uh, particular space that allow you to encrypt communications in some form. There's uh, an entire like sub industry of uh, file sharing and email. Uh, security companies that allow users to encrypt their stuff. So if Larry didn't just share mm -hmm. a document, right, instead of using Dropbox, we use their service. And it allows administrative control mm -hmm. over that encryption such that if I lose a key and a new one is reissued, there's a master key yep. that has access. People <clears throat> way better in encryption can understand that. Yep. But uh, obviously there are ways to do it. I think it depends on what type of uh, encryption technology that you're using. But there's an entire sub, you know, category underneath security that's trying to provide this to, like, if someone leaves, I still have access to their things and have that uh, master key. Ed, hey, this is this is the Clipper chip. I mean, we we argued this back in 1998, 1999, right. and the, the arguments are actually the same. I, there's mm -hmm. there's nothing fundamentally new in the arguments. Um, you know, the U.S. government wanted to have this thing called the Clipper chip that was going to be in the future of all electronic communications, and uh, the cypherpunk community, the uh, academic crypto community, they kind of all rose up and, and pushed it back. I remember those fights very well. I was just mm -hmm. getting started out in information security at the time. Um, I've heard no new argument on yeah. either side, yeah. um, even in the Australian situation here. Mm -hmm. It's the clipper chip. So you can just Google clipper chip and read all the arguments there, and they're the same that they are now. Yep. That's exactly right. It's interesting. Um, so, oh, I want to talk about the OPSEC uh, mistake. There was a, a dark web money counterfeiter that was using cryptocurrency and encrypting everything, except <laughs> the one thing that, <laughs> excuse me, they failed to protect um, was um, he still kept a list 
of mailing addresses where he sent packages containing the counterfeit banknotes. I guess it's a lesson that we should encrypt everything. Well, I mean, if you're an evil bad guy, I mean, this weighs in the favor of those, you know, in law enforcement and the good guys. But, you know, the lesson is you've got to encrypt everything, especially. OPSEC is hard. It is. is It is. (laughs) It's hard for me. I mean, bad guys end up in the press. A little bit. when their OPSEC oh. is bad. I don't necessarily know that some of us, you know, or people we know outside of criminals, right, would end up in the press where OPSEC is bad. If it's bad yep. enough, depending on the situation, sure. But we tend to pick on the criminals, I feel like, that have poor OPSEC and, and make fun of them. But They're going to get better. They're just going to throw in some blockchain and some artificial intelligence and everything's going to be beautiful. Machine <laughs> learning. Machine learning. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can feel it. That's not machine learning. I, you know, it's interesting. I, every time I talk about, uh, I, I can't help but like retell the story. Every time we talk about a Linux privilege escalation vulnerability, I go back to a conversation with a, a very smart Frenchman who warned me that Linux has some issues with privilege escalation. This was maybe seven years ago or so, mm-hmm. uh, or years ago, right? And every time I cover it, I think, keep thinking, damn, he was right. Yep, mm-hmm. he was definitely right. And then here we have it again. Um, and I didn't understand what policy kit was. I was like, oh, what, what, what is that? But apparently it's pre-installed on distributions like Red Hat, Debian, Ubuntu, and CentOS. Pretty heavily used. Um, it exists due to the improper validation of permission requests for any low-privilege user ID greater than the variable int max. Well, it turns out that if you set your UID higher than int max, which is two one four seven four eight three six four seven, it means that you can create a user account um, above that value that allow you to execute any system CTL command successfully. As that's, Josh that's, Joff was saying, classic rollover. Classic, yeah, it's a classic rollover attack, right? Because mm. that value is two to the power of thirty-one, which is signed integer thirty-two bit. Yeah, uh, and it rolls over, right? But um, wow, who would have thought it? And 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 just to think of sitting there, you're you're sitting. Can you imagine the, the actual research here, right? You're sitting here hosing around with your Linux machine, and you're like, hey, you know what? What if I put the UID up to two to the power of thirty-one? What's going to happen, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, whoa! It was probably a complete accident, right? Um, but uh, talk about fun, right? Yeah, right. this is um. And, you know, not enough, too. I, I, I see pen testers make this mistake and forget to test integer bounds. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing the kinds of things you can find uh, with integer bounds uh, kind of checking. Uh, and this is certainly an example. Yeah. It makes me think a cool challenge would be, like, if you only had uh, access to system CTL, like, what, what you could do... How quickly could you do it? Like, I think that would be a, a Ed, speaking of challenges, right? That'd be kind yeah. of a cool challenge. Like, what could you do with just this? I think that's an, it made me think about that. That's an exercise that I think many of us should probably do more regularly is limit yourself in, in some arbitrary way and see what you can do. To me, uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a new blog, right? Like system control kung fu? Yeah. <laughs> like kind of like that old command line right like how many ways to how many ways to you know shell and in other things could you find using just one command that would be fun i think it's a really good time yeah and i'm sure that's the best way to learn linux right and there's and there's a lot of pen testers out there that probably are faced with the situation Uh quite often limited very limited tool set and, and what can i do 
So if uh, you look over the last three years of Holiday Hack Challenge, including this year, we do something just like that. We will give you a limited environment. You're kind of right. stuck in this very restricted shell or some other thing. You maybe you'll see something like a Python prompt this year, and uh, <laughs> and go. You just have to get control of this machine. Yeah. Um, the system CTL thing is especially nice, I think. Right. It, well, you know, it's, like you should be able to with that, right? Yeah. It's kind of like if you were working in a Docker container at all times. <laughs> You're just <laughs> naturally limited inside of yeah. a Docker container. Uh, hey, that's that's no joke. I've actually on on real honest to god yeah. test landed inside of a Docker container and gone, uh oh. What do I do? What now? do I do now? It's kind of like landing in this small little micro moon and going. Yep. Where do I go? Where do I do? <laughs> where do, where I do, I do? Wait, where is System D? Crap! It's yeah. not here at all. It never oh, is. Shit. Right now, what? Yep. I hate that. Uh, if that's like a little micro moon. Then you got to terraform it. You know. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to start growing some stuff on this. Huh? Is that another hidden ad? Terraform. <laughs> No, no comment. Okay, good, good. He did use the word go in this. And sentence. he did say Terraform. Yeah. Mm. It's making it's notes. Password. It's Santa's password. <laughs> go? Wow. That, that sucks. Bad. Yeah. Santa's got Santa bad should, Santa should have learned. Right. Um, Ticketmaster has failed to take responsibility for malware. I it, this I, I saw I saw the could, story from Lee, and this is this was could you amazing. De- debating this is just so I don't know. I mean. So basically, the way I understand it happened is that Ticketmaster was using a third party to what was that functionality? Uh, I remember they're using some third party for some functionality, incorporating some JavaScript code, and the the report says basically Ticketmaster uh, incorporated this other feature or more JavaScript code from this third party without the third party's blessing, because the third party says. Well, if Ticketmaster told us they were going to do that, we would have said, no, 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 that's insecure. People are going to hack the site. Magecart. Magecart. So they're a shopping cart. Yes. And so the debate between Ticketmaster and Magecart continues where Ticketmaster says, well, we're using their their third-party libraries and JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people hacked us through that, and it's clearly Magecart's problem. Magecart's going, well, Ticketmaster used this other functionality, incorporated this other script that we never told them that they should use ever. Or if they had asked us, we would have told them never to use it. And now people are trying to get refunds from Ticketmaster and and all this stuff, and Ticketmaster's like, no, not our fault. Not our problem. So in this age of incorporating third-party JavaScript and such, who's libel? I feel like we could have a a pretty healthy debate Mm. (laughs) about this. Keith, do you care to weigh in on this as this is in your direct area of expertise? Honestly, um, it is the responsibility of the people that are using the software to understand how it works. Full stop. Like, honestly, if they don't understand <laughs> yeah. what, they're, what they're wrapping in for their code, they shouldn't be using it. Period. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd I, agree with that. I'd agree yeah. with that. Yep. Full stop. No debate. I have so I much have for the debate. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I just have, I, I have found I felt the very same strongly about issue. that. I have found the exact same issue, by the way, in uh, mobile apps. I've actually, you know, been uh, involved. I won't drop any names, but I've been involved in pen testing some mobile apps and found a, a library dependency where they the developers of the app did not understand the feature, the, all of the features of the library. And there was a debug mode in there that you could turn on by sending the Android app an intent, and all of a sudden it logged all of the HTTP and HTTPS transactions to the Android uh, debug log. So you saw all the cookies. You saw the, the, how all convenient. Of it. 
But, yeah, but it was, how, it was can you, how can you know all of the features of your software? I mean, if they're not documented, do you have to do a complete code analysis of every possible thing you're going to call? Well, Is that's that a good economically sensible? I mean, that's what we're coming. That's what, to be secure. That's what we're coming down to. And before the show, Ed, we were talking about open source software, its vulnerabilities, and mm-hmm. software that detects open source software vulnerabilities. And now, more than ever, you've really got to know your software inventory, but also, as Ed was saying, the impacts of all of it. And w- at what point does that just not become, as you said, Ed, economically feasible? Yeah. So uh, actually, to Ed's question as well. So in the um, in the medical space, right? So I work at Thermo Fisher Scientific. We make lab science and medical device technologies. Um, one of the things that the FDA requires us to have, or is uh, soon uh, expected to require us to have, is a software bill of materials. They're sure. actually expecting us to know what's in our software. Um, so yeah, but knowing as, what's in it and knowing if it's vulnerable or not are two different things. And knowing how conceivably. It works. Not all fair, fair, but also, I mean, the the FDA also goes on to say things like, "Hey, by the way, if you have a vulnerability in your code base, you need to inform your customers within sixty days." So it's it behooves us to actually know that there are vulnerabilities in our code base, right? It's it's but actually if you don't look regulated for, to require us. If you don't look for vulnerabilities in your code base, do you not have anything to report ever? <laughs> <laughs> no, then you're just negligent. That's an entirely different problem mm. set. But um, but so, but is uh, uh, oh, the, the term escapes me. Um, when you don't know about something, stupidity. <laughs> well, <laughs> ignorance, <laughs> ignorance is, is willful, ignorance negligence. Willful ignorance. Right. So, yeah. so willful ignorance, um, not doing your due diligence based right. on your okay. software bill of materials. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine the FDA would call that willful yeah. ignorance. And, and at some point. And there's Especially a difference it, between willful ignorance and actual ignorance. So, right. Right. So, if you have the ability to uh, to scan <clears> it, then you should scan it. Right. Is is kind of the way that I look at it. And. That's not to say that there aren't, you know, semi-decent or at least halfway decent tier one. Like I'm talking the lowest level that you should probably be doing everywhere. Scans that you could do with free open source software. Arachne is a great one for dynamic analysis, for example. So there are tools out there that you can at least get a high level start on these things that shouldn't cost you anything. So you should be doing them. Again, my my concern that I think um, <clears throat> really took shape this year was the presence of open source software components inside of your software that are vulnerable. And I, I think it's pretty fascinating how that's evolved into not just that like we know I incorporated a library and I know that it's vulnerable or like I'm running WordPress, which in fact is vulnerable, but I'm running a vulnerable WordPress plugin because it was announced. But what happens when I'm building software incorporating components and as we've documented over the course of this year, they uh, the author just gives up and says, you know what, it's out there. Even if someone did report a vulnerability, it's not there. Or as is in the case with a Node uh, plugin or Node uh, package, the author gave up but had previously given uh, commit rights to someone who then built in a backdoor to mine cryptocurrency. That was one of, I hate talking about trends, right? Mm. But this was one of the topics that got me fired up this year uh, that I, I really believe we need to raise more awareness on uh, and try to solve. And I know a lot of us on the show have talked about it at, at nauseum this year. Ed, I'd like to get your take on this problem, uh, your assessment of it, and maybe some suggestions for it's, it. Well, it's a really hard problem because, I mean, the thing that makes software development more straightforward, more open to more people. I mean, the point is we don't have enough security people, but we don't even have enough software developers in the world to develop all the software that we need. So they're trying to make languages that make it easier for people yeah. to develop software. And how do you do that? You give them libraries, all kinds of libraries, mm-hmm. and you make it easily so you can dynamically 
add libraries and functionality and capabilities to your code, and then you just call it. So the trend is to more complicated uh, library calls to all kinds of code that nobody's really looked at that mm -hmm. you're either loading down across the net, you know, uh, doing an update now or dynamically pulling into your environment. It is a complete mess and a disaster. And I think it's getting far, far, far worse just looking at how modern code is put together. Nobody has any idea of when they make an API call, all the other calls that get made mm -hmm. until it like touches the hardware, no, no freaking clue. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you? You guys develop some code, right? Do you, do you really know? You make some calls. Maybe you know the library you call. But do you know what it calls and what it calls? You've seen your Python code crash, Joff, or, or maybe your code never crashes. You see what? that Wait, back. hold on. You're what assuming that it runs. That? What did I call? <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm trusting all that, right? All, yeah. it, it's, it's bewildering. I don't know the solution to the problem, but I, I think it's getting far, far worse based on the way modern code is developed and the fact that we're trying to isolate the developers from the complexity of what the machine underneath is doing um, by giving them more and more libraries to call that are less and less trusted. Oh, my my yeah. office at the top of the hour always does the the wongs. So that's a good, that's a good reminder. Yeah, let's try and cover a, a couple <laughs> right. of stories. Uh, I do have some public bug bounty stuff in there. I there was an article, uh, bug crowd uh, <clears throat> polled its uh, bug bounty hunters. I don't know about you guys. I I couldn't find anything really compelling in that article to talk about. I mean, they talk about statistics. They talk about. 31.56% of bug bounty hunters aspire to be a full-time bug bounty hunter. Okay, that's great. 72% um, of the hacker community are ages 18 to 29. 43% learned how to hack via online resources and blogs. And 41% are self-taught. Maybe there's something in there that many bug bounty hunters aren't formally trained. But in our field... I, I mean, it's much like, uh, you know, sales. Uh, it, it only counts once the deal closes or once you actually find a bug. Mm -hmm. How you got there, as long as it's ethical, uh, seemingly doesn't really matter. I, so I don't know. I didn't find anything particularly useful or, or really insightful uh, based on this, this survey. I, I do have young people who sometimes ask me. They'll say, you know, maybe it's college kids. And they'll say, um, hey, what do you think about me becoming a full-time bug bounty hunter? Mm. And I, I say, look, I, I don't know if I do that long term. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you got to feed yourself mm -hmm. and you might starve. Um, if, it might be that you just choose an unlucky problem set to work on and you don't get any bugs from it. Right. Or your skills aren't quite up to snuff for the given piece of software you're looking at. So I always say that's, that's nice to do on the side. It's almost like, hey, I want to be a musician. That's what I want to do for a living. That's great. And maybe you'll hit it big. Right. But you might want something on the side that you could do, too. I think that's a good analogy. And, and that's a really good point as well. Having formerly worked at Bugcraft, full disclosure, um, a lot of the people that are able to do this full time live in uh, areas of the world where making a few hundred dollars for the month is your living wage, right? Like that's a livable wage. So um, to do that full time in a first world country uh, like the United States or even you know parts of Europe, you've got to be some of the very best in the world at what you do. And as much as all of us aspire to be the very best in the world, especially when you're getting started, that's just not the case, right? So um, it's a good way to practice is the way that I always you know point it back to people. So it's a good way to stay up on your skills, to look at new things, to explore different technologies in a way that can add value to your skill set. But until you become the very best, it's not going to be a livable wage for you. No, I did. Yeah, that's, that's well said, actually. And it actually brings up this interesting idea. So people in, um, 
I don't know, let's call them non-privileged countries uh, who can, you know, actually have a, a pretty good living making making less money than somebody could in a first world country. They're actually finding all the mistakes that are made in code all over the world. And that's kind of a cool thing, I it think, is, ultimately, yeah. if the economics of third world countries allow their very smart people to find the flaws that they're using in the software and that, you know, we're using, hey, I think that makes everything better. And hopefully over time, it'll drive the wages up there. Mm. Absolutely. And, and quite frankly, it's it's a, a great way to open up those markets and exp- explore the whole idea around, um, you know, security testing, reliable security testing in areas of the world that has traditionally been overlooked. I, I think that it uh, it changes lives in a very positive way is the way that I like to look at it. That's pretty cool. I like that. The most uh, I add this for <clears throat> entertainment value. The worst <laughs> password offenders of 2018 exposed was the oh, title. I, I didn't, again, I thought it was fairly entertaining. You know, they open up with Kanye West, his visit to the White House, and disclosing his, his iPhone passcode, uh-huh. which was highly entertaining, I thought. Um, the, the one that gets me is the Italian company, Ferrero, who offered spectacularly bad password advice to users. They suggested the use of Nutella. They say the name of a popular sweet spread as a password. I, do they really feel the need to explain what Nutella is? Do most people not know what Nutella Nutella is? Gnutella or Nutella? Is that Gnutella or Nutella? Wait, well, which one are you, refer- are, you refer- are you referring to? The hazelnut spread or the peer-to-peer file sharing network? I am referring to the hazelnut spread. Okay, so Larry, Nutella. Yes. Why not both, Larry? Why not both? Oh. The hazelnut spread file oh. sharing network. Wait, they all. Oh, I'm onto something. This is a business model a I can get behind. <laughs> I, where's it, Tom Liston when you need him? This was just, it was all a, a chuckles in this article. A, a White House staffer who wrote down uh, his email login and password on official White House stationery, uh, which is just comical. Um, the uh, plain text password left on a GitHub allowed anyone to access millions of people people's data in uh, university from university researchers. Um, uh, so what, Equifax? I, I, oh. I didn't get into the <laughs> advice uh, for users. Never However, I will say, again, not to talk about trends, but one of the things this year that I think more so came to light uh, for me were the behavioral uh, and attribute um, study of how a user behaves and the attributes about their computing devices and connectivity that can tie that back to a person's identity so that you don't have to enter your password or a second factor that I think is very promising now more so than ever before Mm -hmm. to be able to authenticate people without them having to dig out a two-factor authentication token or enter their password because of the location of your devices and other attributes such as Wi-Fi networks and Bluetooth uh, devices. I think that's pretty promising. I I don't know if we'll get there Mm. uh, anytime soon, but I think it's pretty cool. Speaking of which, I, you know, you talk about the the whole uh, you know two factor. You don't have to dig out another authenticator mm-hmm. device. I was uh, I forget who I was talking with, and I just it just dawned on me like, so uh, a bunch of the things that I do two factor for, I use Authy on my phone. Mm-hmm. And then uh, somebody said to me, "Oh yeah, I love using Authy because they have a desktop app." I'm like, "Wait, what?" Hmm. What's Authy? It's like is it like a, a Google Authenticator? Yeah, it's yeah. A, like a Google Authenticator type thing. Um, and like they have a desktop app. I'm like, that's cool. So you put my two FA on the same computer that I'm going to use to log in on. <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, what, dude? What? <laughs> what I, know, I don't have the desktop Authy app to know if there's any credential you need to get into it or something. Of right, like, like a second 
factor for your second factor? factor? Dude, I heard you have second factor, so I put a second factor in your second factor. Is that like a third factor? I think it's more like a turd factor myself. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. We'll go with that. Um, Okay. Everyone's uh, getting after me for going in the next segment uh, as we're a little over time, but everyone is the hotly anticipated segment on Holiday Hack Challenge, I think is what everyone wants to get to. So we'll take a short break, come back with Ed Scotus to talk about that. (laughs) 